Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Today's guest is Brian Kaplan. Brian is an economist at George Mason University, a research fellow at the Mercatus Center, and a New York Times bestselling author. His books include The Myth of the Rational Voter, which was voted Best Political Book of the Year by the New York Times, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders. Brian also blogs for EconLog, which I read regularly and highly recommend. He's been published in the New York Times, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, Newsweek, The Atlantic, The American Economic Review, and many more. He's also appeared on ABC, BBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. This episode focuses on his argument for open borders, which I find very compelling. Before you dismiss it as crazy, utopian, or naive, just listen to Brian's full account of it. And read the book. Whether or not I agree with his conclusions, Brian is one of the most careful thinkers I've had the pleasure of speaking with, so he's always worth listening to. This conversation happened way back in March or April, before I overhauled my audio setup, so please do forgive the poor audio quality. As always, thank you so much for supporting my work. I can't tell you how much it means to have all of your support. So without further ado, Brian Kaplan. I first discovered you, I think, two years ago when I was a sophomore at Columbia University. I came across an article in The Atlantic arguing Ah. using fairly solid common sense and rational argument and confirming a lot of sort of common sense notions that I had about my own education, which is that most of the stuff I was learning wasn't contributing directly or really in any way to my productivity. Most of what I was learning, I was going to forget. And that was also true of everyone around me. And Mm -hmm. yet there was this deep seated idea that you're not supposed to question that the purpose of school is to become smarter. So can you give a summary of your thesis in that book and the kinds of evidence that you marshaled? Uh, Sure. So let's just focus on what you started with. When you actually sit in a classroom, if you really think about it critically, most of the time it seems like what you're learning you're never going to need to know in the future. And in fact, you're probably going to forget what you learn soon after the final exam. So then the question is, what is the point? One possibility is this is just wrong. Uh, but in my book, The Case Against Education, I go over evidence on how much adults actually know. And what's quite clear is that for most of the subjects you study in school, either you never learned it or you forgot it. It's hard to tell which of the two happened, probably a combination of both. But when you go and test people on uh, test adults on subjects that they study for years in school, their knowledge is usually just so bad 
that it's clear that, again, they either never learned it or they forgot it. Then finally, there's this question that, well, maybe you've forgotten everything we can measure, but there's something awesome that still happened that we can't measure. This is uh, the idea that almost every teacher sells you on, well, it's not that you're going to remember what I told you, but I taught you how to think. I taught thinking skills, critical thinking, uh, or I actually made you smarter. And then in my book, I go over the evidence on these, and I say that while this sounds good, there is a whole field called educational psychology that has tried to measure these subtle indirect effects. They're very sympathetic to the idea. They want to find the effects, but after 100 years of research, they've really had a lot of trouble finding them. So I come away saying that actually the simple story that you aren't learning very much, that you're going to forget it, and that it's not going to have some magical hidden benefits, put all that together, and that's probably the truth. Yeah, and then so what is the point of education? Yeah, so there is this puzzle. If that's true, how come education seems to help people's careers so much? How come it seems to open up so many doors to better occupations, to higher pay, to that kind of thing? And my story there, not original to me, but I do, I think, flesh it out more than anyone else does, is to say that the main reason school pays is that you're getting a stamp on your forehead. Uh, You are, as we say, you're signaling, you're showing off to impress employers. And by doing this, you do actually successfully increase increase your pay and open up doors for yourself. But it's not because you learned a lot of useful skills in school. The main reason is just that you persuaded or convinced employers of what were your original traits, right? You know, that you know, basically you are selling people on these skills that you already had rather than really acquiring them in school. Of course, it's not that you don't acquire any skills at all, but just not that many. And part of your argument is that the reason we can't substitute school for an IQ test is because the length of school, precisely the fact that it's four years. And it suggests that what the stamp on your forehead is saying is not just that you're smart, but that you're hardworking and willing to take orders or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, there's this puzzle. Why why does it have to take four years? Why can't you just give an IQ test and then skip straight to Goldman Sachs? And what I say is that school is not just showing that you're smart, it's showing a package of traits. So again, in the book, I ask people, what do you think about a person that you meet when they're super smart, but they dropped out of high school, right? And almost everyone has an immediate answer. Like, well, yeah, like they're really lazy or they're just extreme, an extreme nonconformist. They say, yeah, and employers don't want those things. Mm-hmm. And I put a lot of weight, especially on the nonconformity aspect or, the, or the, rather the conformity aspect of going to school and, sh- and as a way of showing that you're willing to follow orders and, and go, go with the team. Because here's the thing. Suppose someone comes up with a radical new way of showing how conformist you are. What do you think about the first person who says, oh, I want to do the radical new way of showing how conformist I am? The answer is that person sounds like a nonconformist. So I say we really really are in this catch-22 where if you want to come up with a new way of showing conformity, it actually shows nonconformity. And this tends to sustain systems like this for a very long time, which isn't to say that it's impossible for them to change. But there's a reason why we keep wearing suits decade after decade. There's a reason why schools still look very much the way they did hundreds of years ago. And that is that if you're showing conformity, the best way of doing it is just to stick with the way we've always done it. So here's a, here's a question. Why is medical school 
longer in America than in many other places. And <laughs> what are the implications for your argument on that? Yeah, so there, part of the reason is just medical licensing. So you can't just go straight from high school to medical school and uh, in the United States. You wouldn't be allowed to. And you can't obviously practice medicine without a license. You'll be put in jail for that. So that's lurking in the background. And important to remember that. But yes, it is striking that in the UK, for example, you do go straight from high school to medical school. Right. So why can't we do that here? And again, you know, there's the problem of you know, licensing aside of in a society where that's abnormal then the person that wants to do that raises concern. And you're like, well, what's up with this guy that thinks he's going to go straight from high school to medical school when everybody else does it a different way, right? So I would say even without the licensing, I think there would be a serious problem there, although I think there would be at least somewhat more flexibility. But yeah, I mean, I think you really can see that this ridiculous story that, well, it's important for doctors to go and spend four years doing a regular undergraduate education because that way it opens their minds. And then if someone has a weird disease, these open-minded people who had to study Shakespeare will be more attuned to the possibility that regular medical techniques aren't telling us the right thing. It's so ridiculous when you think about it. And you know, the idea that if you were in the UK, you'd be afraid for their doctors to treat you because they didn't have to study Shakespeare when they're in college. Come on. Yeah. So with the medical school, at least in America, it seems like society is clearly paying a price for our backwards laws. But overall, yeah. Overall, your your story about higher education being mostly about signaling rather than uh, making people, you know, putting knowledge into people or making people more intelligent. We're training them to do a job. Right. Is that a deadweight loss for society or is it fulfilling a necessary and useful purpose. Right. So here's the thing. Government at all levels very heavily subsidized the status quo, which makes me think it's very likely that there are much cheaper ways of doing this. So, yeah, so, you know, there is a very large deadweight cost of people could be starting their real life at a much earlier age. And that means that both the uh, time that people spend in school, but also all of the money that they're putting into the resources could have been saved, at least a lot of it. Uh, to me, the most compelling evidence of this is that we do have data on the amount of education that people in different jobs have had over time. And what we can see is that there's been really high credential inflation over the past 80 years or so. This means is that for the same job that your parents or grandparents could have gotten with a high school degree, you often now need a college degree. For the, mm-hmm. the same job that you used to be able to do with a college degree, you now need a graduate degree. Now, of course, you could say, well, maybe the job is harder and being a, a secretary now is more intellectually demanding than being a secretary 50 years ago. But what I say there is that there, you know the people that do these numbers are conscious of these problems. And what they say is there are some jobs that are more cognitively demanding than in the past. There's others that are actually easier, like being a waiter. And yet now we do see a lot of waiters with college degrees, which would have seemed insane in 1950, right? And is it that being a waiter is so much more intellectually demanding in the past? No. what's, What's going on is that now we just have a much more educated population. So if you're running a fancy restaurant and you want to get your more elite people that are that are serving the customers, you just raise the bar because you can. Right. There's now so many people with college degrees that it uh, that you can safely say, well, you need a college degree for this job. And it does make sense. You're still because you are selecting the higher quality workers. But you could have done gotten the higher quality workers in 1950 by saying you only need a high school degree. Uh, I was just in Guatemala and I was asking them. So down here in Guatemala, 
how, how many waiters would have college degrees? And people just laugh. They say, you don't have college people, waiters with college degrees in Guatemala. That's insane. They say, well, in the United States, we do. Right. And I say it's just as insane in the United States uh, as in Guatemala from a social point of view. However, from the point of view of an employer, well, yeah, if there's all these college, people with college degrees applying to be a waiter at Morton's, then, yeah, I'll, I'll take that into account. Yeah. So part of the reason I found your article so interesting was, A, it described my experience. Mm-hmm. B, it used, it used common sense in a, in a way that I hadn't seen it applied to this particular problem before and, mm-hmm. and in a way that I don't see it applied generally. So one example <laughs> would be um, when class gets canceled, everyone celebrates. <laughs> if you if I order a package on Amazon and it gets to me and something's wrong or something's missing, I'm mad. Yeah. Right away. That should tip you off. If school were about me getting knowledge from class, improving my productivity and therefore directly increasing the amount of money I'm going to make, we we should be mad when class gets canceled because we're getting cheated out of our product. Yeah, absolutely. So we must right here, some people say, well, it's just the students are myopic. They don't care about the future. And I say, if that were the right story, then students wouldn't need to wait for the professor to cancel class. They just wouldn't come. Right. So clearly what's going on is that people would they don't want to be the only one not coming, but they're very happy if no one comes. And that says, aha. So what you're really looking to get out of this is the grade, not the learning, which you actually probably correctly think you don't really need later on, but the grade on the other hand is something that employers might use to make your life better or worse. Yeah. So why is this line of thinking at least slightly taboo? It it seems to me it's not insanely taboo, Mm -hmm. but it just seems one is a little bit of a party pooper. If, if one brings up your thesis at like the typical lunch table, I found. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of things going on, but uh, what I talk about most in the book is there's something that psychologists call social desirability bias, social desirability bias. It's a fancy name for something that we are all aware of, which is when the truth sounds bad, people lie. They avoid saying it, right? And, And often they even convince themselves into thinking that the unpleasant truth is actually wrong, right? And you can see this for things as simple as, you know, am I fat? Right. What is the correct answer to am I fat? It's like, no, no, of course not. You look great. Everything's fine. Now, sometimes you're not fat and what they're saying is true, but sometimes you are. You do have a problem with your weight, but people still don't want to level with you. It just sounds bad. And education is one of these sacred things where you're supposed to say that it's wonderful. You're supposed to say that it benefits every child. It's the most important thing in the world. And when you say otherwise, then it just sounds bad, right? And I, I know this, um, right? And you, you like to think about what a politician would say if he wants to get elected. He wouldn't say what I'm saying. He would go and say, education is the most important thing for every American child. Every American child deserves the absolute very best education, sir. All right, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, all right? So that's the kind of thing that someone that wants to win over an audience would say, right? But, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, every preacher of every religion saying their religion's the true religion and like they can't all be right. So obviously there's something there's something fishy going on. Yeah. Right. So I think that's a lot of it. A lot of it is just that it sounds bad. And as to why it sounds so bad to say this, why does it sound bad to say 
our society be better off if people could start adult life at an earlier age. So, I mean, some of it is just the look, oh, there's a lot of nice people trying their best. And, you know, every time people have told me, oh, it's not, oh, there's this myth that teachers are nice. And I say, look, that's not a myth. I'm t- like, teachers are nice. You know, very obviously, like preschool teachers, elementary school teachers, those people aren't nice. Come on. Like, who is nice if, the, if, if kindergarten teachers aren't nice? They're very sweet, kindly people. Uh, but they're not that logical. They're not just the facts, Joe Friday kind of people. Right. And I say, yeah, well, you know, the way that we figure out the world isn't by being nice. It's by having that just the facts attitude. And yet when you go and say something that hurts the feelings and reduces the status of very nice people, yeah, you just sound bad. So, you know, like in presenting it, I always try to be cheerful about it and especially just try to say, all right, look, you know, let's not worry so much about what you're supposed to think. What did you really see? What did you really experience? And I found actually that that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'll say like, like I only write controversial books. If it's the topic isn't controversial, I just don't worry about it. It isn't interesting to me. I have some non-controversial views. I'm a firm believer that the sky is blue, but I'm not going to write a book about the sky and, and, its, and its blueness. Right. So anyway, I only do controversial books, but out of all the, th- the my topics, this one is actually the easiest sell to a random audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those other controversial books. Um, <laughs> I have read Open Borders, which mm-hmm. is a very unique book because it's a graphic nonfiction book, which is to mm-hmm. say it's illustrated like a comic book. Yeah. But the level of argument is more or less precisely what you would get in a standard nonfiction book for a, a general audience. Mm-hmm. And it works really well in the case of Open Borders. You know, when I first heard about it, I thought, there's no way that this can work. If this worked, there would be more of this. But I came <laughs> out of it thinking every book should be like this. So awesome. How, how did you get that idea? I, I, I love you too, Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so here's the thing is I've, I've been – I did never read comic books when I was a kid. It just cost too much money. It was too hard to get to them. Library only had a couple of dog-eared copies of Doctor Strange out of order. But what, really, it's after I became professor that I had some money. I started buying a lot of these books. And I found out that there is this whole subgenre of nonfiction graphic novels. And some of them are fantastic works of, you know, some fantastic educational works. So my very favorite example is The Cartoon History of the Universe by Larry Gonick. You know, in five volumes, he just does the exactly what he advertises. He gives the history of the world from the Big Bang up to the Iraq War. And what I noticed is for any area of history that I knew well, he was extremely factually accurate. But he managed to just convey a lot more information in a much shorter amount of time and also made it much more entertaining so that you were more likely to really finish the book. So saying, hey, if I can go and try this. I can convey a lot more information per minute and I can get a lot more minutes of people's time because it's more fun and they're enjoying themselves. So anyway, I spent a lot of years as a consumer of these works trying to figure out what they had done in order to make the book good. And then I said, okay, I'm going to try doing this myself. Uh, Now I can't actually draw. So I shopped around for an artist and I was really fortunate. I got my number one choice in the universe, Zach Wienersmith, who's, if you don't know the name, you probably have seen his cartoons because they're so widely shared on social media. He does this ca- ca- cartoon strip every day called Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. 
So anyway, I managed to talk him into being my illustrator and I'm kind of a control freak. So I very closely storyboarded the book using Google images and notes. And then we work really closely together so that, you know, I, you know, I give him a draft or he give me a draft and I'd say, I want a little bit more like this. And then we go back and forth. Anyway, so the final book, uh, to my mind, it really looks just the way that I wanted it to look. Mm-hmm. And, but then, like, like I said, you know, the point of this is not to dumb down the subject. It's not just to say it's only a comic book so I can say whatever I want. I don't have to be careful. I don't have to be fair. I tried to keep it at a very high intellectual level, but just to use the combination of words and pictures and that old adage, a picture's worth a thousand words, you know, if you choose it well to get through a lot of information in a couple of hours time and also just to keep people reading. Right. And on top of this, I think I was able to just get a much broader audience. So there's a lot of people that would not want to read a nonfiction book on immigration, but they'll read this graphic novel. And especially I was really happy that I was able to get kids reading the book. So not even just teenagers, I was able to get you know, kids in elementary school reading it. And I don't think they understand everything that I said, but they, I think they understood a lot. So, you know, like, like my daughter, when, you know, like she was five, when I was working on it, it's the only thing I've ever been writing where she was reading over my shoulder. Mm. Right. And I said, Hey, maybe I've got something here. And I know, you know, we were just in the Caribbean and she saw some very extreme poverty there and I wasn't even around. And she was asking my wife, you know, like, are these people that might like to come to the United States, uh, you know, but they're not allowed to. And, you know, I was saying, yeah, like, that's, that's really what it is. So my daughter was able to pick this up on her own that, you know, like we go to another country and you see people that really probably would like to move or at least would like to have the option. A lot of them probably would, but they're not allowed to because it's illegal. So the, the effect your book has, you know, sometimes I, I try to do the you know, historical thought experiment of what it would feel like to be like the typical white Southerner in the Jim Crow South, like mm-hmm. psychologically normal and in the way that humans always do accepting the world more or less as you see it and not deeply questioning uh, the systems you're, you're born into. And I think the, the part of the effect your book has is to kind of put yourself psychologically in that situation with regard to open borders, even if you can't necessarily sustain the level of moral indignation that one might have towards like a racial apartheid system Mm -hmm. at minimum, I can see how someone would rationally feel that much indignation about the fact that you can't move where you want to move on earth. Although most Mm -hmm. of your arguments are not so moralizing in tone, Mm -hmm. they're more based on economics and sort of addressing all the main criticisms of, of open borders, namely that it's, it's going to, ruin American culture or more charitably change American culture in ways that are undesirable. I feel that's one of the big arguments that's made. How do you address that argument in the book? Right. Yeah. So the way that I want to structure the book is just to start with a moral argument and then say, but look, I'm not an absolutist. So it seems wrong to go and say that just because you're born in Haiti, you have to be stuck in Haiti for the rest of your life. But Maybe if we did the thing that sounded good, it would lead to disaster. So that's really the way that I wanted to structure it. But you're right. I did want to get people just thinking about why is it okay to say that Haitians are, you know, aren't allowed to come to the United States to live and work here. Well, you know, but it's not okay to say that black Americans in the Jim Crow South weren't allowed to go and live in white neighborhoods or take jobs that people think of as reserved for whites. Right. And I think you're right on the psychology. 
So I think the, you know, the big difference is that it takes more mental effort to defend a system that where you see the victims of it face to face every day than one where you just don't have to look at them. So, I mean, I think if we were looking at Asian poverty every day, then uh, the, it would be a lot easier to break down the sense of, stat, of the status quo is okay, because you'd say, well, wait a second, I saw them, they're human beings, why are we treating them this way? Whereas, like I say in the book, really, if you don't want to see Haitian poverty, just don't go to Haiti and you never have to see it, and then uh, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but yeah, but like, like when I was working on that, you know, I actually do have a panel with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And, you know, when I'm there, I was thinking, so there's really two arguments for what was wrong with the Jim Crow South. And there's the argument of, it was like, Jim Crow was wrong because African-Americans are human beings. And the other one is, no, 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 Jim Crow is wrong because African-Americans are Americans. Right. And you'll notice that in the Martin Luther King speech, it's all about human be about our common humanity rather than our common Americanness. And, and again, I say, look, here's the thing, like, you know, I, that, that an argument that it's wrong to do it to them because they're Americans. Well, that one, there's an easy answer and say, well, we don't really consider them full Americans. And you know, this has been enshrined in our law for a long time. But you can't really say that about human beings. Like, we don't really consider them full human beings. Look, dude, they are. They are human beings. So you can't just say we don't consider them such. Whereas whether or not you consider them part of your team, on the other hand, that is uh, very arbitrary. So, you know, you, you know like, like, you know, I know like, there are a lot of people say that's the difference is that you shouldn't treat uh, your fellow, uh, fellow countrymen this way. But then, like, why you so like, like suppose we the, there was just a redefinition of the team, then would that make Jim Crow OK? Or there's a constitutional amendment saying officially, uh, you know, African-Americans are now African residents of America, but they are not Americans. And we said to say this clearly as a matter of law, would that have made it any uh, any less bad? And this idea that it's about them being Americans that makes it wrong, that's what, to my mind, is the alien. It's an argument that a lot of people want to make, but it's one that's really actually hard to swallow when you think about it. Uh, but yes, but, you know, but after I go over this moral argument, and again, I sort of put that out there really just to say, look, we should start by saying people can come and then think of that as something that we might bend if the circumstances are dire, right? And there I think, you know, think about, so I've, about five times I debated, debated Mark Krikorian, head of the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, which is probably the most important anti-immigration think tank in the world. Right? And you know, what he always says is, look, I'm not against all immigration, but I start off with a default of zero, and then you've got to talk me into letting people in. And I say, like, why should your default be not letting people in? Why isn't your default to let people in unless there's a reason not to? Right. And so, I mean, and a lot of the moral philosophy part of the book is to say that you should start with a yes rather than a no and then modify from there. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, then most of the book, as you say, it doesn't really like, like it's not really about moralizing. It's about saying, all right, well, there are these concerns that people have named to over, uh, to say, well, it may seem the right, the right thing to do to let Haitians in, but here's why we really shouldn't. And then I just try to very calmly go over the evidence on all of those, right? And again, the one where I put the most weight is the economic effects of immigration, because here I know that there is some you know, very powerful research saying that not only is, are the economic effects of immigration not bad, but that they're actually fantastically good, right? And the logic here is just that when immigrant shows up from a poor country into a rich country, they suddenly get a large raise, 
basic economics says there's one reason why they're getting that large raise, and that's they're much more productive in a rich country than a poor country. And that means that when you trap human talent in poor countries, you aren't just impoverishing the would-be immigrants. You're also impoverishing all the customers that would have bought that stuff, right? And when you do the math on how much harm immigration restrictions are doing, the number is astronomical because there's a whole lot of people want to come. Probably at least a billion people would like to move for work. And when they do come, this multiplies their productivity manyfold. So if you, if you take you know, over a billion people and multiply their productivity five times, that alone is giving you a massive increase in the production of mankind. And as I say in the book many times, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. Whenever you're trying to evaluate economic policy, you should always focus on what does it do to production, because that is the difference between wealth and poverty is producing a lot of stuff. To, right. And so, I mean, and a lot of the moral philosophy part of the book is to say that you should start with a yes rather than a no and then modify from there. Mm. Uh, but yeah, then most of the book, like, as you say, it doesn't really like, like it's not really about moralizing. It's about saying, all right, well, there are these concerns that people have named to over, uh, to say, well, it may seem the right, the right thing to do to let Haitians in, but here's why we really shouldn't. And then I just try to very calmly go over the evidence on all of those, right? And again, the one where I put the most weight is the economic effects of immigration, because here I know that there is some you know, very powerful research saying that not only is, are the economic effects of immigration not bad, but that they're actually fantastically good, right? And again, the logic here is just that when immigrant shows up from a poor country into a rich country, they suddenly get a large raise, Basic economics says there's one reason why they're getting that large raise, and that's they're much more productive in a rich country than a poor country. And that means that when you trap human talent in poor countries, you aren't just impoverishing the would-be immigrants. You're also impoverishing all the customers that would have bought that stuff, right? And when you do the math on how much harm immigration restrictions are doing, the number is astronomical because there's a whole lot of people want to come. Probably at least a billion people would like to move for work. And when they do come, this multiplies their productivity manyfold. So if you, if you take you know, over a billion people and multiply their productivity five times, that alone is giving you a massive increase in the production of mankind. And as I say in the book many times, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. Whenever you're trying to evaluate economic policy, you should always focus on what does it do to production, because that is the difference between wealth and poverty is producing a lot of stuff.